0: This is the text we're going to be looking at today. And um, if, if you need a, this is a slight audience participation, but don't worry, there's no hand signals. Uh, if you want to underline some things that I suggest and need a pen, raise your hand and we'll get a pen to you. Let's go to that uh, Bible text now. If you've got your little pen or pencil, I want to suggest that you underline uh, the phrase greatly troubled in verse 29. It's the beginning of sort of the second paragraph. Underline greatly troubled. And in the left margin, write the word disgrace. Um, and then um, underline the, in verse 30 the, the word favor. And uh, in the left margin or the right, it's your choice. Write the word honor. And then in the final pe- paragraph, underline the Holy Spirit will come on you. And then a little bit later in that same sentence, the word overshadow. And then the final underline would be the um, next to last sentence. May your word to me be fulfilled. And next to that, in the margin, you can write the word surrender. So the margin words are disgrace, honor, and surrender. Okay, so we're in an Advent series on... on, um, on waiting that, uh, just behind the curtain acknowledgement, Emily picked the uh, sermon topics for the Advent series. I suffer from a little male pattern maleness. I was used to being in charge by myself for like many years about especially uh, picking the sermon series. And so, and you know, I would, you know, I would give have a preaching team, but I'd pick the series and Whatever. This time, Emily picked the series, as she does most, many of the times. But this, for some reason, what she assigned to me, which was this text. Oh my gosh, I was kicking and screaming. I went to a staff meeting. I said, Emily, you took the good text before and then after, and you saddled me with this. This is not my favorite track on the album, so to speak. <laughs> Luke chapter 2, and I'm like, oh, I was pissing and moaning. I was pissing and moaning so much that I even caught my own attention, like, what is going on here and then i read the text and it was kind of funny because it's about mary surrendering to the lord's initiative she doesn't take the initiative she just surrenders to it and i'm like oh i think i should just do this and and cuz emily was great she said pick another text you don't have to do this i said no i'm going to i'm going to do it and it's been the most fun the preparation for this has been awesome so um But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So um, this is one of two texts in the New Testament on the virgin birth. And, you know, become famous last week at the state funeral of the 41st president, right, in the National Cathedral in D.C. We had all the former and current presidents and spouses sitting in the first row. There was, you know, much about nothing on Twitter because one of the couples didn't recite the Apostles' Creed, which includes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. So, this just reminded us, this little kerfluffle, how the virgin birth is mainly used now as like a litmus test of proper religiosity and patriotism and general respectability. Which is really odd because it's only referenced um, here and in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. It's absent in the Gospels of Mark and John. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament writing. So Paul, James, and Peter, the other writers of the letters in the New Testament ignore it. Um, it's well known by now, I think, that our English translation of Isaiah's prophecy, which is rehearsed at Christmas time, behold the virgin will be with child and you will call his name Emmanuel. That's, we were singing the Emmanuel song. It means God with us. Um, that's actually a, a well-known mistranslation that the word in Hebrew has always meant young woman. So I'm not arguing against the virgin birth, but I, what I'd like to do is just dial that part of the text down and um, return to uh, Mary to her um, Experience uh, of this uh, this encounter seen through uh, the Jewish lenses that it would have been there in the beginning, um, where actually it has nothing to do with securing her status as like a pure person or even Jesus' status as divine, but it's really about securing Mary's status as a disgraced woman honored by God. much more than qualifying her for her, you know, lifelong purity ring or something like that. So, the Gospel of Matthew, which is like the other gospel of the four that um, talks about the virgin birth, opens, um, fascinatingly, with a genealogy, which is all our favorite, a list of the ancestry of Jesus, and the only women in this long ancestor list are disgraced women. So there's Tamar, who posed as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law, Judah, into having sex with her. She had a biblical reason for doing it. Um, Rahab, who was the Jericho prostitute who helped the Israeli spies and um, take over Jericho. Ruth, who was a single woman who had a scandalous night in the field with the older man, Boaz, and then Bathsheba who was the wife of Uriah, and the woman who was taken by King David became the mother of Solomon. So the idea here that the Gospel of Matthew is um, working on in that list of ancestors where the only four women are these disgraced women is it's the idea that God works with disgraced people to bring about his good realm. And especially disgraced women under a cloud of sexual impropriety. So, you know, the Hebrew writers were much more delicate than just to state it flat out like that. So it's, it comes in this more literary form. Luke is, is really evoking the same theme with the two opening uh, annunciations. Not enunciation, but annunciation. It's kind of a technical religious term for what happens when an angel makes a pregnancy announcement To someone who's about to have a baby. This is the second of two in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Emily talked about the first one that was the annunciation by an angel to Zechariah when he was doing his priestly duty in the temple. He's the husband of Elizabeth who's the mother of John the Baptist and she lived under the disgrace of barrenness. The text is very clear to point out you know infertility was always ascribed unfairly to the woman in the ancient world and it was viewed as this horrible thing that cast a suspicion over someone and then you have Mary um, whose pregnancy clearly apart from the agency of her husband brought her into a status of like um, lifelong disgrace. Caroline pointed out to me in our staff meeting that the very first annunciation in the Bible came to Hagar. Who was also a young woman. So, like, stick with me, people. This is gonna deliver, I promise. Elizabeth and Mary, like Elizabeth and Mary, Hagar is a woman who was no stranger to disgrace. She was a slave girl of Abraham and Sarah. So we're in the book of Genesis now, like the pre-beginnings of the people of Israel. Um, Hagar is an Egyptian. That means she's an alien. In fact, her name, Hagar, means alien. Alien. And like so many immigrants, she's abused by the powerful keepers. In this case, it's Abraham and Sarah. She's used as a surrogate when Sarah and Abram are infertile. But when Hagar conceives, Sarah turns on her. Her master turns on her. Mistress turns on her. And the text says harassed or abused her. And Hagar, it's so bad, she flees for her life. And then comes the first ever annunciation that she will bear a son. And listen to it. The angel of the Lord said, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. This is echoed later by the prophet Isaiah. This is another text that's used around Christmas time. Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Hagar's role is um, downplayed. Um, in the later tradition probably because the Muslims who came like you know 500 years after the time of Christ the Muslims claim Ishmael as a as a founding figure in the in the Arab community especially but she plays a much more important role than she's given credit for by by Christians. Um, Hagar is Abraham's counterpart in in the book of Genesis. Abraham's important because he's got this, he's got God just appearing to him, kind of out of the blue, establishing a whole new relationship with human beings through Abraham. God speaks directly to Abram, forging this independent connection with God that's hadn't been before. Hagar has the same experience and she responds in the same way she names uh, God. She gives God a name, which is kind of like a high honor to be able to give God a name. You are El Roy, she says, meaning the one who sees me. In other words, the revelation of God that Hagar gets is not really connected so much to to, um, Abraham. She's a kind of founder. And her son, Ishmael, Like Abraham's grandson Jacob becomes the founder of like a mighty tribe and has 12 sons, 12 tribes, but it's a separate kind of thing. Um, Now all of this would have like fired the Jewish imagination of the people who first heard this account that we're reading in Luke chapter 2. So I think it's just kind of ironic that, while you know, the orthodoxy police of Christianity focus on the virgin birth as this, like, litmus test for whether you're a respectable person. The Jewish reading highlights God's presence to work by way of a disgraced people. And in particular, those whose disgrace has something to do with sex or with sexual innuendo. So there's, there's some fascinating things going on in this text and interestingly this is also reinforced by the presence at the end of all four gospels of an angel making another announcement always to women which is about really the birth of a whole new order of creation signaled by the empty tomb by the risen Jesus who's what a disgraced man thought to be guilty but declared innocent by God so all of this is playing the same themes, but we're largely kind of blinded to this. So somehow, you know, the, the gospel, when it's been like shrunk down to a really small thing, that gospel has been focused on declaring everyone guilty. Like that's, you can't get anywhere with God until everyone is a guilty. Everyone's a miserable sinner. But the good news of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is much more about declaring disgraced people innocent. It's just an emphasis on the different syllable there. A Jewish reading of the angel's announcement to Mary also helps us with another problem um, when we don't have our Jewish lenses on. It's that part, um, I think it's about... Two-thirds of the way down there would be like verse, uh, it doesn't show in my thing, verse 37 or so. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, beneath the piety of this text, you know, it's a text that's used at Christmas time, you hear it in the shopping malls, there's like a layer of piety, conventional piety that's over this text. Um, There's an ethical problem, isn't there? I mean, the typical age of marriage for a Jewish man up the period was about 18, later was also quite possible, Josephus said it was more like 30, but somewhere in there, but it was much earlier for women, which would place Mary as as we would say like a a teenage girl, just maybe post mensis, 13, 14, 15. So yeah, while God in the Hebrew Bible transcends gender, he is most frequently imagined as male. I mean, most of the metaphors in the Bible of God are, especially the ones that we pay attention to are male metaphor, but it... You put that together and it just seems a little creepy. Like a young woman impregnated by a male god who's also named the Ancient of Days at that. It's just like, we've got an ethical problem here that the piety kind of obscures. But if we think about it, we're like, ooh, I'm not so comfortable with that. So Amy Jill Levine, uh, if if you... Get one New Testament. Get the Jewish annotated New Testament. Amy Jo Levine is the editor of her. She's a Jewish scholar. She's an Orthodox Jewish woman who's also a feminist. What's not to love? And she's a scholar in the New Testament, which is quite fascinating. And Amy Jo Levine says, and, and it's, it's demonstrable, that in the Jewish tradition, the Holy Spirit... Uh, understood as the divine presence. So the Holy Spirit is not referenced when we're talking about God's remoteness or over everything. The Holy Spirit is always referenced when there's a divine presence right here, right now in our world. Um, The Holy Spirit, she says, was regarded always in feminine terms in in the Jewish imagination. She points out that in the writings of the rabbis of this period, maybe you've heard the term Shekinah, Shekinah, and it's like the the uh, like the glorious presence of God in the temple. The Shekinah is a feminine noun in Hebrew. It, it's uh, related to the word dwelling or settling, or even nesting. So, the idea here is that the divine presence that settles on a person or place is imagined or understood as a feminine presence if any gender is to be assigned to it. And this is just good old-fashioned Bible. I'm not doing anything like fancy here. This is all deeply embedded in the text. The Judaism of this period, of the uh, period between the Old and the New Testament, had a strong sense of the divinity of a figure known as wisdom. In the Greek, Sophia. And she was personified wisdom always as a woman. You see this in the book of Proverbs very prominently. And again, that was the sense of the divine presence near us depicted as a woman. So these are the images that would have been evoked by the picture of the Holy Spirit like overshadowing Mary. Would it be like the Shekinah, dwelling, settling, or nesting even in Mary, Sophia is coming to Mary. So what I'm about to share is a little personal, and it's not something I would talk about in the typical barbershop or on men's poker night, if you're picking up what I'm laying down. So just don't judge. For about 18 months, um, maybe between in 2005 and 2006, I had like a, a quite remarkable phase I would say of my daily praying where like every day's praying in the morning was better than anything I'd ever experienced in any praying time or any like charismatic worship time or any like wow that was a wonderful experience and it was like literally every day for about 18 months And during this period, I still don't understand what what all that was about. Um, I corresponded with a woman named Phyllis Tickle at the time. Many of you know her as the compiler of the divine age, uh, hours, a fixed hour prayer. Phyllis Tickle was like a southern old mystic lady. They had like all the mystic experiences that mystics have, but she didn't talk to anyone about it. But I kind of found out about it, and so I was emailing Phyllis Tickle about some of my praying experiences and like getting her thoughts about it because I needed someone to correspond with. And it, the, what was happening wasn't like part of my like um, social milieu, um, for a time, I was experiencing the divine presence as feminine. And at first, it was, you know, I was raised in the 1950s. I mean, give me a break. You know, Ozzy and Herod and, you know, binary gender thing and men in charge and all that kind of stuff. I started experiencing God as feminine. And at first, it was really unsettling um, Because I had always just associated that feeling of intimacy with, like, romantic encounter. So I emailed Phyllis about this. I think it took me about three emails to finally, like, come out with what I was, I was trying to, like, dance around it indirectly. Finally, I, I just told her flat out what I was experiencing. And I said, am I weird? Is this okay? Like, is this okay? And she replied in her characteristic southern mystic way, Oh, Wilson, what's your problem? Sounds like Sophia is paying you a visit. Relax and enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. Mary was having an experience akin to that. She was experiencing the Shekinah, the Holy Spirit, within the tradition of Israel, which she would have been experiencing this to the extent that she experienced something, it's clear that she did as a feminine thing. It wasn't a male overture. It was this feminine thing. And, you know, it's so, so ironic. The Gentiles, who are kind of in charge of the church now, the non-Jewish people, we, we tend to use the virgin birth to mean, oh, this proves that God, not Joseph, is the father of Jesus, Right? We run with the masculine image. But, but that's not what's going on here. Mary is having an experience of the divine presence that has this feminine quality. If we had to get, use a gendered pronoun, we'd say Mary is surrendering to her, not to him. This is not a masculine overture. So let's apply this to our own experience of waiting. That's what the series is about, is how do we wait we're looking to these texts with a view towards well what does this tell us about what it means for us to wait because we do a lot of waiting in our lives, right? I mean, our brains do a lot of future planning and that means our mode of existence is often waiting for some anticipated or feared or hoped for future to come our way. You know, dogs don't do that so much or, you know, I don't think mosquitoes are in that mode. They're they're, they're you know, good Buddhists. They're living in the moment. They're in the present and, and don't you wish you could do that from time to time? And That's what meditation is all about, but that's, let's not go there (laughs) let's apply this to our own experience of waiting so mary here is entering like the beginning of full adulthood she's betrothed to be married Um, think about her social situation she's a young woman in roman occupied territory i mean just in in the northern part of israel away from the capital city I mean, she's in a very vulnerable position. I mean, the, the rate of assault on young women in territory subdued by an occupation army um, with no Geneva Convention, no possibility of a war crimes tribunal, just had to have been staggering. Um, so she's in a very vulnerable position. Um, now we add to this our cultural understanding that the Virgin birth later was extended in the Roman Catholic view to the idea that Mary never had sex with, with Joseph. The Roman Catholics believe this. Um, the popular religious version of Mary is ever virgin or like sexually pure, which of course implies that sex is dirty, right? If you're sexually pure because you don't have any sex, it's, you know, what is that saying about your view of sex? But the role the virgin birth plays in this Jewish story is to emphasize that Mary became pregnant outside the normal and only legitimate agency of her husband. And this vaulted Mary already in this vulnerable low rung on the power ladder into becoming a chronic carrier of social disgrace. But we're talking about our own experience of waiting. The experience of waiting for something that's longed for. It's usually something we don't have that we wish we had. Sometimes it's like, I ought to have achieved this by now. Or this ought to have happened in my life now. Like your 35th birthday. And you're like, whoa. This, I am an adult now. And this is what I am as an adult. And I was picturing something much more impressive <laughs> than my life right now. There's a sense of like not enough often when we're waiting with longing for something. That is an experience of disgrace of a sort, isn't it? I and mean, the word disgrace means like not honored, not favored, not respectable, um, criticized, under a cloud, what's wrong with you? Mary lived without being honored, without being favored, under this cloud of suspicion. It's what it's like to wait often. You know, in a state of waiting, we're also like Mary when the first angel spoke to her. It says she was greatly troubled. I think a better translation is perplexed. Zechariah was terrified when the angel appeared to him. Mary is just like perplexed. Like, I I don't get it. Being baffled is part of like waiting for things that you want to happen. But you have no idea if they're going to happen. And you're just, you're perplexed. And it's in that place that Mary experiences the divine presence in this way that has no trace of dominating uh, the effect of the divine presence is only to honor her so I had you underline that word um, and put that word honor later on in the text it's, it's repeated over and over again the, the angel just says words of blessing and affirms how Mary's going to be honored among women. It's, like, it's not just that one time. It's like goes on and on for the divine encounter with Mary later. She's being honored by this divine presence. Uh, space is being created for her, that she just naturally inhabits the space. And so naturally, she surrenders to this presence the word surrender isn't used but her you know let it be done to me according to your word who who wouldn't i mean i think her surrender says more about the divine presence that she experienced than it says about mary's character probably I mean, surrender can have like a military connotation, right? You're defeated by an overpowering foe and you're forced to surrender to this, you know, superior power. But it also has like a falling in love connotation, right? Right? Um, The surrender of a straight man to a woman or a lesbian to a woman or a non-binary person to someone they're falling for. The experience of falling in love is not like surrender like, you know, the Japanese after World War II and General MacArthur. It's like a who wouldn't fall for this person. I think given Mary's experience of the divine presence, this is what surrender would have felt like to her. So... I'm at the conclusion. The gospel is the good news that when we are waiting for something and especially when our waiting is tainted by self or social criticism and we feel inadequate or not enough or something's wrong with me, why hasn't this happened, why haven't I gotten in Why, what? and we're naturally perplexed what comes along with that, we can anticipate a God who approaches us with a divine presence like Mary experienced. And so maybe that's what we should be looking for when we're in this um, state, when we're thinking about trying to imagine or reach out to God. So we have a little quiet reflection time. Um, So you can get, we take a couple, three minutes at the end here to do a little meditative exercise. Um, I think we'll do this in maybe two or three parts. The first part is just like um, the skill of meditating. the skill of meditating is picking out something to focus on. And then as you're naturally distracted, returning your focus to that thing that you've decided to focus on. So it's just a matter of going back and forth between your focal point and the thoughts that are going through your mind or, you know, the gurgling of your stomach or some sound you hear or whatever. It distracts you and your mind goes over there and then you just return to that point of focus. So let's just start this with a, a minute's worth of um, focused meditation. I just encourage you to focus on your breath, your Take a deep breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. Do that uh, two or three times. And then for a minute, just return your focus when you find yourself distracted to your breath in and out. okay so that's just the opening exercise to get you acclimated to what it's like to meditate with a focal point now i'd like to suggest a particular focal point and that you take a little bit of time now at the beginning here just to call to mind a woman that you know Uh, it could be in the past could be in the present but someone who's had like a positive influence on you you admire this Woman, could be a mother, grandmother, aunt, teacher, sister, spouse. If, you want to take, if you've got the per- person's picture on the phone, you could pull your phone out and look at the picture. Um, there's a wonderful picture about, I'm reading the um, memoir of Michelle Obama. And there's this picture in there on election night 2008, and Barack Obama's sitting on the couch, and his mother-in-law is sitting at the like, far, further end of the couch. Barack Obama lost his mother just before he first ran for office as a state senator. And then like two, year, two weeks or so earlier before he was elected president for the first time, he lost his grandmother, who was really his stand-in mother for many years. She lived in Hawaii. And he's feeling kind of vulnerable. And in, in, in the picture, you can see he's like skinny. He's sitting there. He's got his legs crossed. And Michelle's mother, his mother-in-law, Marianne Robinson, is just a straight arrow, sitting quite a distance from him, and she just has her hand extended on his shoulder. And in the memoir, it says, a little bit later, Michelle, she saw that scene, and then she saw Barack holding hands with his mother-in-law, Marianne Robinson. That's the kind of feeling that I'm... Asking you to focus on as you call to mind a woman you know in your past or a scene like that. And just sit with that um, image for about a minute and then as your mind gets distracted just return to the details of that scene or that person. And now just keep your eyes closed and let that image of a person dissolve, but hold on to the feeling and try to imagine an invisible divine presence that is surrounding you and that's the feeling you have in relation to that divine presence. And that'll be our final minute. Very good. Here endeth the meditation.